Good evening, this is Quintus Curtius. Welcome back to the podcast. And this podcast is going to be the first of several podcasts, maybe two, maybe three, on my new book, uh, a translation of Cicero's On Moral Ends. And I wanted to do this podcast, you could almost call it a lecture series, just to explain the work, discuss some of the major highlights, and maybe help introduce people to the work, because it's it's a very, very rich and complicated work, and it really would benefit from some discussion and some explanation. So I, I wanted to do that, because it, it may not be generally known to most people. So I think we can we can all really benefit from that. So that's what I'm going to do. I, there may be two, maybe maybe three podcasts, depending on how far we get. Uh, the work itself is currently available on Amazon, and there's links to it on my website. I'll post a link to it in this this podcast as well, and it's available right now in in both um, paperback and also in Kindle, and you can find that um, find that uh, on Amazon. And I'll be referring to the book during this podcast, and you can follow along if you already have the book. If not, you can uh, maybe look into getting that. Uh, the The way the system works out on Amazon is that if you uh, if you buy the the paperback, the um, if you buy the paperback version of the of the work, the uh, the Kindle version then is like two ninety nine. So there is a deal there. Uh, involved, but you know whatever works. You know some people like Kindle, some people like paperback. Uh, whatever works, it doesn't doesn't really matter. Um, I'm also working on a a, a uh, audiobook version, and my my reader is going to be available towards the end of the month here. So he'll start working on that. That probably will be ready in another I don't know three three weeks three weeks or so. So we're getting all the bases covered, all the avenues covered here. So. What I wanted, what all the format of this, we're going to go through sort of a brief introduction to the work, give a, an overview of it, and then go into the books and talk about the major highlights. So let me go ahead and and uh, turn to and do that. All right. Well, the let's start out with the work itself. What what are the the uh, the basics of this this work? The the uh, the, the Latin title of this work is um, uh, De Finibus Bonorum et Malorum, which in English means on the ends of, of, of goods and evils. And you might say, okay, what the hell does that mean? Well, to understand and to explain what the title means, we have to understand that there was a... Um, one of the major problems of, of, um, of Greek philosophy that existed at Cicero's time was what, what should be the ultimate goal that man should direct his life towards what what was our ultimate aim what is our ultimate good what what is the highest of all goods you see philosophers up until that time had talked about you know the man has a variety of of physical and mental goods but there was an idea that there must be some overriding ultimate good some summum summum bonum that all the other goods somehow related back to, or were their energies were directed towards, and this is really the idea of of uh, uh, on moral ends that there must be some ultimate good, some some ultimate 
best goal or directive or end state that we should really focus our our life's activities on. And that's really what the book is about. And Cicero proposes to analyze this question from the perspective of the three major philosophical schools of his day, Epicureanism, Stoicism, and Academicism, or the the, the uh, Platonist philosophy. When I say academic, I mean that's referring to Plato's academy. So academic... The word academic does not mean what it means today. It has a special meaning. It's a special philosophical term, and it refers essentially to the Platonic Academy. So, so be be mindful of that. So that's really what the meaning of of the title uh, "On Moral Ends" or "On Ends" uh, means. That's that's really what that what that uh, what that's all about. Now, when Cicero was writing this treatise, we have to understand that. Latin speakers or his fellow Romans were not really exposed, had not really been exposed in detail or in depth to the, the, uh, the, the, the complex nuances of, of Greek philosophy. Okay, uh, The Romans came late to the philosophical game. And Cicero, as a youth, had studied in Athens. He had studied in Rhodes. He was a lifelong enthusiast of philosophy. And he wanted, when he was writing these his, his books between uh, you know roughly 44 and 46 BC, 40, well, I say 46 to 44 BC, he was trying to leave a legacy where he would expose his countrymen to the pleasures of Greek philosophy. That's really what he was trying to do. These his books were written for the masses. It's kind of ironic that now the, these the, the his books are, are are seen as in some ways a specialty type of activity, but uh, they were really intended for a mass audience. They were they were intended for the multitude, and that really was his greatest legacy in many ways. And uh, I think one of the most precious things that that uh, on moral ends really does is that. Um, Cicero, and I, I talk about this in the book in detail, is that he was able to reshape the Latin language in a way that allowed it to accommodate all these complex philosophical terms that previously had only existed in Greek. And Cicero, as we see in the beginning of book one, took a very, very radical line. Whereas everybody before him, in many ways, genuflected to the altar of Greek uh, philosophical mastery. Cicero, being the plucky uh, nationalist, I guess, that he was, took a contrarian view. He said, no, no, there's nothing deficient in the Latin language. There's nothing wrong with our language. Our language not only is just as good as Greek in conveying philosophical concepts, but we're actually better than the Greeks are. That Latin, Latin is actually superior to Greek. Now, to us, removed you know more than two thousand years from this controversy, this doesn't seem like a big deal. But in his day, it was a revolutionary step. It really was a very, very bold, uh, iconoclastic step, because what he really was asserting was the the Latin speaking world's intellectual independence from Greece. He was, in one stroke, trying to free the Latin speaking world from the fetters from the baggage of 
of the Greeks. And, you know, we have to understand that in, in, in the Eastern Mediterranean, even for many centuries later, the, the Greek-speaking um, culture, the, the Greek-speaking world really held sway. Greek uh, culture had tremendous prestige. But Cicero basically said, you know, we have something to say ourselves. We can, we can contribute something ourselves to the philosophical discourse. And I'm going to uh, go about and coin all these new philosophical terms in Latin so that uh, my countrymen can really understand and make their own contributions to the field. And this is a very, very important step and should never be underestimated. And I think that too many writers in this field completely neglect to really discuss this, either because they're not aware of it or they don't really understand the importance of it, but it, it's there. And it's a current that really runs through his philosophical works. I mean, Cicero was a, was a scrapper. Cicero was a fighter. And he was not willing to take a seat at the, um, in, the, in the back of the auditorium. He had to be front and center in some ways. So this was, this was the real, uh, this was the purpose of On Moral Ends, was to discuss this question of what is the ultimate goal, what is the most, uh, uh, the most aimed at state uh, that man should, should aim for. All right, well, that being the case, the next question is, how does Cicero go about organizing his treaties? How does he explore this question of what is the end of goods? What is the highest good? Uh, the Well, as we said, he, he's looking at this question through the prism of three different philosophical systems. And the, treaty, the treaties itself is, is essentially uh, three different dialogues. And in the... Uh, the, the paperback version of the book on page 38, I have a table which breaks down the, the three different dialogues. It, it, it breaks down the dialogue, the speakers, the topic, the date, and the location. The first dialogue uh, comprises books one and two. There are five books in On Moral Ends. The first dialogue is books one and two, and the major speakers are uh, uh, Lucius Manlius Tor Torquatus, Cicero, and a minor figure named uh, Caius Valerius Triarius. And the topic is the Epicurean moral philosophy and criticisms of it, and the date is 50 BC, and the location is Cumae in Italy. All right, the second dialogue, again, uh, books three and four, that's where uh, the speakers talk about Stoicism and criticisms of it. The date is 52 BC, and that's set in Tusculum. And the speakers in that dialogue are Marcus, uh, Marcus Cato and Cicero. Cicero's role is sort of like the gadfly. He kind of plays the role of, that Socrates did in Plato's dialogues, whom he uh, presumably took as a, as a guide. Uh, the third dialogue is Book 5, and um, the um, Calpurnianus, uh, Marcus Pupius Piso Calpurnianus, and he's the speaker there, and Cicero also appears in there, and there are some minor figures who I don't, won't need to go into, his cousin and his friend uh, Atticus. Uh, and that's where they, the, the subject of discussion is the moral philosophy of the academics, as interpreted by Antiochus of Ascalon, and the date is 79 BC, and that's in Athens, Greece. Now, let me discuss a little bit about these, these dialogues. It was customary in Cicero's day 
to put the imaginary dialogues, and this was a tradition that went back to Plato, and it was it, it was not uh, it was not considered inappropriate or um, a problem to basically use real historical figures as the mouthpieces of probably imaginary dialogues. I mean, it's very possible. I mean, these are all real people. All of the people that are involved in these dialogues were actually real historical figures. They were friends of Cicero's. And in many ways, it was a way of his honoring them, of showing them homage and um, giving them, you know, immortality in some ways by including them in his books. But whether these actually, whether these dialogues actually really happens, I mean, probably not. But it's it's likely that the speakers probably discussed similar subjects uh, to these. I mean, th these were all erudite, educated men. These were all men that were interested in philosophy. And I'm sure on on more than on one occasion or more that they probably did delve into these subjects. But it's not like these are literally uh, there was a stenographer or something, you know, at the back of the room taking notes down as these guys were were discussing these subjects. These are these are educational dialogues, and they're meant to explain, discuss, and uh, expound. So keep that in mind. And I think what we'll talk about in this uh, this first podcast is uh, the the first dialogue uh, that. That that's, uh, that takes up the first and the the second books of the treaties. All right, so let's talk about books uh, one and two. And that, before we really get into that, we really should give a brief overview of Epicureanism. And you know, there's so many subjects in this book that I really can't delve into each one with the type of detail that I would like, because that's really going to have to be your job. You have to do it. I can provide the introduction, but you're going to have to open up the book and and uh, uh, you know enjoy the pleasure of actually going through this. But I think I can point the way by kind of um, discussing you know the main points, hitting the main points, and then moving on. Um, Epicureanism is the subject of the first and second books of On Moral Ends, and you know this is probably one of the most misunderstood and maligned philosophies of the Western world, and. Part of the problem is so few original writings of the Epicureans have survived uh, from the classical world. And I think that's not accidental. I think that they just weren't copied once the once Christianity became the um, the dominant uh, philosophical system, if you will, of Western Europe and Eastern Europe. Um, there was less and less interest really in in preserving. The legacy of the Epicureans, it, it, and you, you can you will understand why when I discuss the uh, the Epicurean philosophy. It, it just really ran counter to the entire Christian ethic. In many ways, it was it was subversive. In many ways, now it's not it's not what people think it is today. The word, the adjective Epicurean in modern English has come to mean something very different from the actual uh, philosophical system of the Epicureans. All right. and, and there is a difference, and it's important to understand what that difference is. Epicurus himself lived from 341 BC to 270 BC. And he himself was, was like a monk in many ways. He lived a very ascetic and austere life. 
And in many ways, he was a, he was a, a very virtuous man. He, he himself, was his, his conduct was above reproach. And what we know of his philosophy today really um, survives in a few fragments. You know, we know we have uh, Lucretius's poem, De Rerum Natura, and we have Diogenes Laertius's uh, Lives of the Philosophers, which I would recommend anybody get if they're really interested um, in this subject. I'm referring to page 29 here of the, uh, the paperback book where I talk about that. Epicurus's goal was essentially to free mankind from what he believed were the oppressive terrors of religion. And he believed that it was pointless, pointless to worry about the gods and to obsess about theology because we, never can, we will never really be able to get to a final uh, adjudication of this issue. You know, it, th- this was a philosophy that was, was straightforward materialist. It was, he was a materialist. He adopted the atomist or atomistic views of Democritus and believed that there was nothing really in the world except atoms in the void. And I talk about this between pages uh, 28 and, um, and 32 of, uh, of the book. So I, I'm not going to go into too much detail about Epicureanism because we could spend hours on it. But essentially, you know, the, again, it was... Um, his focus was was on trying to find a way to liberate man from the sorrows and fears of life, uh, and he thought that by that his philosophy was the best way of doing this. He thought that death ends everything, that there really is no soul that persists uh, in us after we die, and that um, you know we should seek a sensible enjoyment of pleasures tempered by a wisdom that could check excessive desires all right um he uh, he believed that there was nothing wrong with physical pleasures provided they were taken in moderation virtue to epicurus was a means to an end it was not an end in itself and this is a very important distinction between him and the other philosophers uh, pain he believed was an evil wisdom uh, is the ultimate good because it frees man from his enslavement to his desires but um he defined pleasure in a very curious way. He defined pleasure really as a almost a in a negative sense, a kind of a, a freedom from pain or a removal of pain. And um, in my view, anyway, I think this is a very passive view of pleasure that I that uh, I think lent itself to overemphasis of life's uh, avoiding life's unpleasantness. So this is just a rough. A very, very rudimentary background of Epicureanism. And if you really want to get into the detail, I discuss Epicureanism in, in detail in the introduction to uh, my translation. So I suggest that you go in and read that. But these were the main main highlights of the, um, of the philosophy of, uh, of Epicurus. I mean, he, was a, he himself was a sincere man. He was not a, a chaser of uh, physical pleasures. But and I, and I argue this in the um, in the commentary on books uh, one and two. But I say that Epicurus probably should have known that his his emphasis on removing pain, his emphasis on avoiding pain, lent itself to abuse. It would have lent itself to abuse by people who simply want or simply are looking for excuses to avoid the sometimes necessary pain that life involves. 
Okay, life is not, um, and I, again, I don't want to get off on my own philosophy here, but I think we can, we, we're all agreed that life is in some ways expected to be painful in some ways. And to overemphasize removing that pain opens us up to, uh, takes us down dangerous roads. So that's, that's one way of, of seeing Epicureanism. But let's move on now to the first and second books of, um, of, uh, on Moral Ends. All right, well, Cicero dedicates this work to Brutus, who we've seen feature in Cicero's works in the past. And there's nothing remarkable about that uh, because he admired Brutus uh, or had admired him for a long time as a sort of a fellow traveler uh, politically and, and philosophically. But the first book of On Moral Ends starts out with a bang. It really starts out with a bang because at the beginning of the at, at, at the beginning of the work, that's sections, uh, book one, sections nine through eleven and twelve. Um, Cicero states his candid belief that there was nothing deficient in the Latin language, and that Latin was just as uh, capable of expressing deep philosophical nuances as was Greek. And again, as I've said before, this was a very, very revolutionary idea for its time, and needs to be seen as such. Because Cicero's influence can, on, uh, on Latin uh, uh, vocabulary and grammar can never be discounted. Uh, Latin was the language of educated discourse in Western Europe for many, many centuries after Cicero and only stopped really being so arguably in the early 18th century, 1700s, maybe even a little bit later. So this is a man who had influence for many, many hundreds of years many hundreds of years. And I think we really have to think about that and process that and really try to wrap our minds around the significance of that. The, the, the tremendous influence that Cicero had not only on uh, uh, ph philosophy, rhetoric, but also on the church fathers. So very important uh, stuff. And um, Cicero places the um, the location of the dialogue at the beginning of book one in Kumai. And that's important, you know, because as you know, I visited each and every one of these places when I was preparing this translation. And Kumai is a very... Cicero had villas in all of these places, except Athens. He had villas in Tusculum. He had a villa in Kumai. And when I went there, it was a very, very nice... Uh, well, all, all my trips were, were just fantastic. But Kumai is a very uh, mysterious place. It's right along the ocean and looks out into the Tyrrhenian Sea. And uh, it's the location also of, of an oracle, a famous oracle, the, um, the priestess of Apollo, the Sibyl. And that is the second most famous Delphic, uh, the second most famous oracle after the Delphic Oracle in Greece. And so that kind of gives it a very mysterious quality really in the air and you walk around the site you know you can see the acropolis there at uh, at kumai and see the ruins of the temple of apollo and the cisterns and the various different buildings roads and uh it's just you know i i wish i wish you could see it for yourself and i hope if i can inspire other people to visit some of these places i hope i will be able to do that because you really really gain so much by actually putting your feet on the ground and walking in the same places where these great men walked, where these great ideas were formed that influenced so much of uh, Western 
civilization and Western thought. In any case, it was a, it was very nice, and the cave of the Sibyl. You, there's pictures of it. There's photographs of it in the book. You can go look at those. But it was a very magical experience, very mysterious place in many ways, um, which takes time to really wrap your mind around. Now, Cicero's main criticisms in Book One of of um, Epicurus of the Epicurean philosophy really is that uh, you know he dismisses the atomic views of Epicurus. He considers that all nonsense. And again, I, because of time and space, I don't really want to spend a lot of time on Epicurean physics, which would be its, its uh, atomic views, because we're more focused in this, uh, in this podcast on ethics. But you can, spend, you can read that in book one. He goes into real detail about that. But Cicero does, is not buying it. He thinks that uh, the, the atomic views are nonsense. And, you know, um, Cicero's major objections really to, uh, to Epicurus really focus on the fact that Cicero believes that Epicurus places, um, you know, places too much emphasis on the re, on maximizing pleasure and minimizing pla- on minimizing pain all right um, you know in cicero's view virtue in many ways was 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 seen as as if not an end in itself was something very close to that but epicurus did not the epicureans did not really believe this they did not really believe that virtue was an end in itself. Um, they thought that uh, that something else was the ultimate good. So that's one major point. Uh, the other, I think, the one of the high points of the first book is the topic of friendship. Uh, Torquatus, at uh, uh, Book One, Section sixty-five. Uh, takes a real detour into the topic of friendship. And this is a uh, what I call a welcome diversion from the negative flavor of Epicurus's ideas. Uh, Epicurus, in many ways, had, had warm and, and humane views of friendship and thought it was a very, very positive thing. So you can read, um, you know, uh, sections, uh, book one, section 65 through 71 uh, for more on that subject. But it's really in the second book where Cicero opens up on Torquatus and on the Epicurean philosophy in general. I mean, he really fires it up. He really lights it up, and um, it's uh, it, it's in in some ways it's it's a devastating a devastating critique of the Epicurean philosophy. Well, in the first thing um, in Book Two, Section Four, he argues that the Epicurean conception of pleasure is ill-defined and confused. Okay, pleasure to him is not just pain avoidance. There is a difference between sensory pleasure and the, and the avoidance of pain. Okay, that's a, a big point that Cicero makes in the second book. Um, what Epicurus, uh, in Cicero's view, what Epicurus never grasped is that the, quote, lack of pain is not really pleasure, but a sort of middle ground between true, ple- true pleasure and true pain. And this is discussed in Book 2, Section uh, 16. And it's this... In Cicero's view, it's it's this lack of attention to 
definitions and to fine line distinctions is where Epicurus really stumbles and makes his mistakes. This failure to pay attention to definitions and fine line distinctions is one of the main reasons, according to Cicero, why Epicurus arrived at flawed conclusions. He mistakenly, Epicurus mistakenly conflated pleasure with the idea of absence of pain. And these are not the same thing. These are not the same thing. The problem really is that Epicurus could never really make up his mind whether he thought absence of pain was the end of goods or whether he thought pleasure was the end of goods. All right, And this is, these are the things that Cicero chides Epicurus for. But what I think is the most devastating and the most valid criticism of, of Epicureanism is a very valid point which Cicero talks about in uh, Book 2, Sections uh, 34, uh, 34 through 47, really. Um, and this is the idea that by fixating on pleasure, no matter, regardless of what Epicurus me- thought he meant, uh, thought pleasure meant, by constantly talking about it, by constantly discussing it, by making it an issue, you're you're unwittingly or unknowingly opening up the door to hedonist types and people who are going to abuse the philosophy for their own uh, self-interested purposes. We already know that as as humans that we have a predilection for pleasure. We all we all know that. We all know that we love uh, physical pleasure, mental pleasure, all types of pleasures. We certainly don't need any encouragement. And the problem that Cicero really is getting at with Epicurus is that he opens the door to abuses. Remember, Cicero was a man of action. This was a guy who had been consul. This was a guy who had suppressed the Catalinian conspiracy. This was a man who had, who had litigated many cases in court. This, was a, this, this guy was not a wilting lily. This was not just some guy reclining in his country house, sitting in a chair and speculating. This was a man of action. Cicero was a man of action. And he had little to no patience for do-nothings or people who wanted to isolate themselves and talk about pleasure in the abstract without really understanding what the implications of those, uh, of those discussions would be. And so quite understandably, um, you know, Cicero just had, had, uh, really had no patience for it. You know, in Cicero's view, Epicureanism saw the virtues as little more than appendages to be used to acquire pleasures instead of the character-building fortresses of strength that they really are. And he discusses that in Book 2, Section 69. So essentially, Epicurus pays lip service to the idea of virtue, but in fact, he had little faith in its redemptive power. Little faith. All right? And that really is, in, in my view is one of the major criticisms and the major valid criticisms of Epicurus. Again, and Cicero just hammers on these points. He, he hammers on Epicurus's flawed definition of pleasure, his errors in basing a theory of the end of goods on pleasure, his timid downplaying of the importance of the masculine virtues, the unsuitability of Epicureanism for a man of affairs, and his flawed theory of friendship. And I discuss all this in the commentary section on um, on book two, so you should read that. That's in the, in the paperback. It's on pages uh, one seventy one to one seventy three. So Cicero here really opens up and really lets Epicurus have it. 
He really shows that he has no patience for Epicureanism. And, you know, you know, we have to admit he has a point. Because I know there are going to be people that are, that are going to say, and again, uh, Cicero's views are, are controversial here. I'm stating his views. And I personally happen to agree with them. But it's perfectly valid for someone to advocate a different view. There, there are people that might say, hey, look, Quintus, uh, you know, Cicero's uh, is not, is not, uh, was wrong about this. He was a little bit too harsh on Epicurus on this point. He, uh, Epicurus really didn't say this, he, or he really meant something else. Because I've read, I've read uh, Lucretius's De, Rer- De Rerum Natura. I've read uh, the extracts, that the few surviving bits of Epicurus's uh, writings that we find in Diogenes Laertius, and they they seem r- relatively reasonable in themselves. But the problem is this: the problem is, it was an, in many ways it was a negative philosophy. It was a it was a philosophy that defined itself on on avoiding pain, on removing pain. You know, and and. In itself, it, it, it may be a philosophy that's suited for the elite, for someone who has a high level of discipline, maybe someone of a monkish aspect. But it's really not a philosophy that a man of, of action, a man of affairs is going to be uh, willing to adopt because I think it, it, it places too much, too much emphasis on avoiding pain. And life really is a lot about suffering, suffering and, 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 and absorbing pain. Now, again, uh, there are many commentators who have found fault with Cicero's analyses here. And again, we don't really know precisely um, you know, what Cicero's views were. Well, we, we, have, a, actually, we have a pretty good idea. He, he, he despised Epicureanism. But it's not clear whether the arguments he puts in his, in his own mouth, or the mouthpiece of himself, were actually his ideas uh, or he was just uh, being the gadfly to direct to drive the conversation forward, probably a mixture of both. But uh, in any case, books one and two of On Moral Ends are a, a devastating critique of the Epicurean philosophy, and I really encourage you to study the uh, to study the first and second books in your own time of uh, of On Moral Ends, so that you can really have a better grasp of what Epicureanism is and what its major flaws were because that's that's really what i want you to get out of this book what i really want you to get out of on moral ends is i I want you to be able to think for yourself as to what you think the end of goods is what do you think the summum bonum is what do you think it is and as we analyze this subject through the prism of these three different philosophical schools, you're going to be able to fill in the blanks in your own mind. You're going to be able to uh, form, formulate your own thoughts, your own ideas, your own concept of what that end, end of goods is. Maybe you're going to want to combine. Maybe you're going to want to be sort of a uh, uh, the um, eclectic like Cicero was, who takes a little bit from... Epicurus, you a little bit from the Stoics, a little bit from the Platonists, a little bit from the Aristotelians, and combine them all. And that's fine. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. Cicero himself was a was a um, eclectic in many ways. As a lawyer, he was very used to testing ideas, weighing them, sort of savoring them, um, you know, teasing them out for all of their nuances. And that's what I want you to do. I want you to do that. And I think by studying books one and two 
and reading my commentary, the commentary at the end of books one and two, you're going to have a very, very solid grasp of Epicurus's ethical theory, the ethical underpinnings of Epicureanism and why uh, it can be criticized. Again, decide for yourself if you think Cicero's criticisms are valid. Don't take his word for it. Don't take my word for it. Decide for yourself. Decide for yourself. So I think that will wrap up. I, I want to make these podcasts not too long because I think people tend to zone out after a certain period of time. So I will move on. Uh, the next one will we'll, uh, we'll cover uh, books uh, three and four, uh, Stoicism, and we'll see where we go uh, from there. So uh, look for the uh, the post for this podcast on my website. I'll put a link to the to the book where you can you can get it on Amazon. Again, you can get it in Kindle, or you can get it in, in paperback, and you'll be um, better equipped uh, to to study the text. All right, that'll be all for now. I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.